Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible, Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series in the book of Genesis called Confident Faith. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis, and we'll be looking between chapters 18 and 25 with a message entitled Confident Faith. I once heard an illustration about faith went something like this. An African impella can jump the height of 10 feet, and yet you can keep it in a place that has only a three-foot wall. And the reason for that is that the animal will not jump when it can't see where his or her feet are going to land. And so if the fence hides the landing spot, the animal stays put and remains confined. Now, from that illustration came a definition of faith. Faith, so this person said, is the ability to jump when you can't see where your feet are going to land. That's why it's called faith. It's, it's a leap into the unknown, believing that God will take care of what we can't see. Now, I do get it. It's not faith if it deals with the things that are seen. Faith deals with future events that require trust in what we can't see. But still, I must say, I think that illustration falls short of a biblical illustration of faith. Yeah, it's true. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 does remind us that we walk by faith and not by sight. Indeed, we aren't guided by what is seen, that is, with our physical eyes. But the point that Paul is making in 2 Corinthians 5 is that while we are away from the Lord, that is, before we go home to heaven and see the Lord face to face, we make it our aim to please the one whom we have not seen. But that's a great deal different than saying faith is a leap into the unknown. Faith is not about the unknown. Faith rests not in the unknown, but in the known. It rests on the promises of God. Faith's convictions are not based on what we wildly hope is going to happen, but rather in what God has explicitly promised us will happen. When we trust that death will not be the end of us, we base that trust in what is seen. Christ was raised bodily, and so will we be. What is unseen is our actual resurrection. That's yet to come. But the assurance we have, the faith we have, well, that's grounded in a certainty. The righteous God will never speak a promise and not fulfill it. Hence, it seems to me that we can indeed see where our feet are going to land. They're going to land solidly on God's promises. So during the next four weeks, we will be discussing how faith matures or how it becomes fully formed or fully developed until it's the implicit reflex of the child of God to trust not in what's seen, but in the things that God has promised. How do we get to a mature faith where we're finally free of anxiety and fear and constant doubt and worry? We're going to learn how Abraham got there and how we can as well. In Genesis 12 to 17, we see God calling Abraham and Abraham's first steps of faith. There we witness both Abraham's confidence in God and also the moments when he allows fear to override his faith. But in Genesis 18 to 25, the chapters we're going to study, we will see what happens to a man when he embarks upon a lifetime of taking the promises of God seriously. We see a mature man of God. 
In Genesis 12 to 17, God gave Abraham three promises. Leave your country, he says, and go to the land I will show you. And yes, that sounds like he doesn't know where his feet will land, and indeed he doesn't. But listen to the promises. The first, I will make you into a great nation. In Haran, that is, in the place where he lived, his future was all too certain. Yeah, there was wealth, but there was also obscurity and the barrenness of his wife. But in God, there was a certain promise. His descendants would outnumber the grains of sand. Abraham was simply counting on the fact that the promises were certain and that they were better than what he presently had. The second promise was that God was going to give him a land, a a dwelling place, a land that was rich, that it would flow with milk and honey. Again, if what God was promising him was true, then what he was about to receive was far greater than what he had. And finally, God was going to give Abraham a blessing. Indeed, in Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Not only would the great creator become Abraham's God, but further, Abraham would become the one conduit of blessing to the whole earth. If anyone wanted the creator to become their God, they would only do so through Abraham. I mean, the promises are outrageous. They're over the top. Now, before I launch into the substance of this, let's step back for a moment and get that macro picture of the entire book of Genesis. Genesis is not only the first book of the Bible. Genesis lays down the entire storyline for the Bible. Once one understands the book of Genesis, one has a basis for all Christian belief and practice. In essence, you can divide the book into two sections. The first section covers chapters 1 to 11, and those chapters tell us of the Genesis, or the origin of the universe, and especially the earth. Those first 11 chapters tell of four great and grand events. The first is the story of creation. The one and only God determined to create a physical universe, and the earth in particular is an expression of his glory and of his splendor. The second great event is the event of the fall, when the the human race, created in God's image, rebels against the Creator, bringing ruin on both themselves and the created world. Would, in consequence of such a rebellion, would the Creator reject the creation? And the answer is no. God would always ensure that there would be a godly line who would one day rule the creation. Furthermore, God had promised that a seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent, that is, the tempter. The third great event in the first 11 chapters of Genesis is the flood. If God intends the earth to be full of his splendor, he will act to protect his agenda. No human rebellion against him will ultimately succeed. And then finally, the last great event in the introduction to this book is the division of the nations. God determines never to allow one super society of evil to develop and control the world. He will ensure that a divided humanity will be the limiting factor that that prevents evil from ruling this world. But all of that is but the introduction to the story, the the grand narrative of the Bible, the, the story of a determined creator to fill the earth with his glory and his splendor. And now Genesis 12 to 50, the the second section of Genesis, sets the stage for the rest of the Bible. 
If Genesis 1 to 11 is the story of the origins of the universe and of the nature of this world, Genesis 12 to 50 is the story of the origins of the people of God, who will one day inherit all the promises of God. And here again, we have four sections. The first section is Abraham, the second Isaac, the third Jacob, and the last Joseph and his 11 brothers who will become heads of the 12 tribes, the great nation that inherits the promises of Abraham. Since Genesis 1 to 11 serves as the necessary prologue to the story, we might say that Genesis 12 to 50 is the introduction to God's program to fill the earth with his glory. And that tells us something very important. What Genesis 12 to 50 tells us is that God's agenda for this earth is the earth's future. See, we've all heard the phrase being on the right side of history. So, for instance, think of two ancient cities. One's Rome and one's Carthage. The two cities were rivals competing for supremacy. And we now know that Rome was on the right side of history and Carthage was on the wrong side of history. See, we might say, the future belonged to Rome. You know, if you were buying stocks, you should invest heavily in Rome and not in Carthage. But in the same way, you should invest heavily in God's agenda and not in the agenda of Babylon or the agenda of rebellious human beings. The future belongs to the people of God, not to the rebellious line of Cain. When God comes to Abraham, he promises Abraham the very thing that the citizens of Babel were attempting to accomplish. See, God says, and I'm reading Genesis 12, verse 2, I will make your name great. And if you go back to Genesis 11, verse 4, you find the citizens of Babel in the rebellion to God saying, come, let us build a tower that we may make a name for ourselves. Please see in that the tale of two cities the city of man and the city of God. We know that one is on the right side of history and the other is on the wrong side of history. And as we come to Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and he abandons everything he has and jumps over the fence, if you will, because God says that if he does, this is where his feet will land. He will receive a land flowing with milk and honey. His descendants will be great and he will be blessed and he will be the conduit of blessing to the whole world. That's the right side of history. As we begin 2018, we want to thank all of those who support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as a partner to tell monthly partner. Your regular commitment allows for the essentials of ministry to take place, and we're so grateful. 2018 begins a celebration of our 60th anniversary of ministry in Canada, and the giving of every partner has made this milestone possible. Our goal for this special year is to surpass 700 monthly partners. Perhaps you've never given, or, or maybe two or three times a year. Maybe this is the year you become a partner to tell monthly partner. Our commitment will be to continue to provide the Bible teaching you expect, but more, more programs, reaching more people, using more mediums than ever before, while remaining faithful to the mission and legacy established 60 years ago by our founder, Theodore Epp. Become our next Partner to Tell monthly partner today. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The story of Abraham begins about 2150 BC, 
That's when God told Abraham to leave everything and trust him. And today, over 4,000 years later, outside of Christ himself, Abraham is still the central figure of the world. His life is the legacy of faith. You know, faith is a gift of God. And no faith when it's first given is a perfect faith. Yours isn't, and neither is mine. All sin, whatever it is, is the result of failing to believe God. The person who worship idols fails to believe that the great creator provides him or her with, with all that they need. Same is true of the person who steals or, or the person who kills or, or the person who envies the possessions of his neighbor. See, in each case, what is lacking is trust in the creator and in its place is trust in our own misguided initiative, planning our own future with, without consideration of the plans of the creator. You see, when we do that, we're on the wrong side of history. You know, I began by saying that no faith is perfect, neither yours or mine. And therefore, when we first encounter Abraham, it should not surprise us that we see him as a man of faith, but also as a man who wavers at times. You see, on the one hand, his first act of faith seems almost breathtaking. Many years later, Joshua, speaking as a historian, tells Israel, and I'm reading Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 and 3, Joshua says, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. And that's the account of Abraham a man who trusted in God, abandoned all of his family as well as his family gods, and followed God on a wild adventure, faith. And that truly reflects the high point of faith. When he arrives in Canaan, God tells him that this is the very land he's going to receive, and and Abraham again believes. But very shortly, there's a famine in the land, and, and Abraham flees further south, going down to Egypt. And then in complete panic, he tells Pharaoh that his wife is his sister and, and promptly sells her into a harem, believing that the Egyptians are going to kill him on account of his beautiful wife. See, hardly had we encountered Abraham, or, or Abram as he was called then, when he goes from courageous faith to cowardly unbelief. Far from being a man of constant faith, his faith seems to come and go in starts and fits. And in that way, all of us can identify with him. The Christian businessman who starts a business and wonders if he's going to be able to make this thing a go, and then wonders what's going to happen to his family if it doesn't. And in spite of the promises of God that that God will never leave him or forsake him, And he's to look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air and remember that that God clothes the grass with beauty and the birds with food. And will it not be that he, created in God's image and redeemed by the blood of his son, would it be that God should abandon him in his hour of need? But instead of believing that, he lies in bed at night and his restless mind is tossing and his anxious thoughts are considering one potential disaster after the next. And when an opportunity comes his way that's unethical, that skirts the rules, he says, well, what choice do I have? I've got to survive. And in that moment, he remembers that he is not so different from the men who built the Tower of Babel, who believe that all that he needs can be accomplished by his own efforts without deference to the Creator. And that is the struggle. Shall we rely on our own ingenuity and skirt the rules of ethics and character 
and submission to the righteous God, or shall we simply live by faith, you know, work hard, but never relinquish confidence in God? There's hardly a time in the life of the child of God when when the question of faith is not foremost of all of our concerns. And it was for Abraham. As he returns to the promised land, he's quickly engaged in a quarrel with his nephew who demands his share of the land. And eventually, when the land is invaded and Lot's taken a prisoner of war, Abraham again has a choice of faith. And this time, we see that the believing Abraham is back. And in faith, he chases after the invading kings and he recaptures Lot. And furthermore, after he takes plunder from the kings, he tithes to the righteous king of Jerusalem, a man named Melchizedek. But then as chapter 15 of Genesis opens up, we find Abram fearful that the invading kings might come back looking for him. And he complains to God that he's been 20 years in the promised land now and he, and he has no heir. And there's no promised seed that God has promised him. And furthermore, in the next chapter, Sarah and Abraham agree that the only way to get an heir is for Abraham to sleep with his Egyptian servant, again demonstrating a profound lack of confidence in God's ability to fulfill his promises. But don't you identify with Abraham? I mean, what if God's promises seem to take longer than you had anticipated? Well, what then? Again, we see the darker side of Abraham, a side that we're all too familiar with. And what do we make of God's promises when we lose our jobs or when others slander us or when illness strikes and and when it seems that God's care for us isn't immediately at hand? Will we continue to be confident in a promise that seems further off than we had ever imagined? And yet God doesn't abandon Abraham to his struggles. On one beautiful night, he takes Abraham outside and he shows him the stars of the sky and he promises him that his offspring will be more numerous than that. And later again in chapter 17, God says, and I'm reading Genesis 17, 5 to 8, No longer shall your name be Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of many nations. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then Abraham believes, even though he has no more evidence than the fact that God has promised it. The land of Canaan is occupied territory, and his wife is still barren. And yet, in spite of the so-called hard reality of life, God has even more to say. As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Now, Sarah is well past childbearing age, and in this, what we might think this exquisite moment of faith we find Abraham laughing and saying, Oh, that Ishmael, my son, from my Egyptian slave might live before you. And then in the midst of dark and foreboding and brooding doubt, a doubt so great that this man would even laugh in God's face, God, for the first time ever, puts a timeline on the event. By this time next year, Sarah will bear a son. 
And so in an act of faith and according to the command of God, Abraham circumcises the male members of his household, anticipating the promise of God. And with that, the first half of the story of Abraham comes to an end. And as one reflects on this first stage of Abraham's life, we're again left with the same nagging perception. Sometimes the man's faith is breathtakingly strong, and other times he falters, almost falling to his knees in the deep, dark corridors of his own doubt. And it's also true, as I've said, that it's easy to identify with Abraham in this. We all know the reality of fits and starts in our faith, of sometimes believing and sometimes sinning. Is this then the description of every man and woman's faith? Well, no, it's not. In Genesis 18 to 25, we get a very clear picture of Abraham's faith reaching maturity. We see a man who is now comfortable with his God and the demands of his God. Prayer comes to him with greater confidence, and the sacrificial demands of faith finally reach their zenith as he takes his son Isaac up Mount Moriah. Yeah, there, there are still lapses into unbelief at points, but Abraham truly bears the title, the father of all who believe. His willingness to trust in the promises, no matter what he sees in the present, well, that's a template for all of us who long to trust fully and completely in the promises of God that finally find their fruition in Christ and in his cross. And so all of this is an invitation. Join me as we discover the principles of how faith grows from fits and starts to a full, consistent confidence in God. And that's the story of Abraham, and that can be our story as well. So join me over the next four weeks as we learn how to become a mature man or woman of faith. John, thanks for your message today, but just a real basic question I think will be helpful. How would you define the term faith? Yeah, I mean, I think I could say, you know, faith is simply trust in God, which is true. But I think I'd add something to that. I would say that faith is trust in those things that God has promised us. So, you know, some people will trust in God and then they'll, you know, they'll be in presumption and they'll, you know, put their faith in things that God has not promised them. So I think we need to say whenever God makes a specific promise to us, I mean, the easiest is that in the cross of his son, he has removed our sins from us, and therefore he is no longer angry with us for our sins, but that his anger has fallen at Christ. We simply say, I believe. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow for more of the series, Confident Faith, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. One ministry we celebrate during our 60th anniversary is Laugh Again with Phil Calloway. It's a unique ministry that connects people to a God of hope and joy. What difference does your support of Laugh Again make in people's lives? Listen to this. Each morning, my children and I tune in. It makes us laugh. It sometimes makes me cry. It always helps us look to Jesus. Since we began listening, we've been through some very hard times as a couple. You speak a message of joy, profound and biblical, without being stuffy. It helps us more than you could ever know. Phil doesn't dodge the sometimes harsh realities of life, but in the midst of them shows how applicable the scriptures are. And I listen daily for the laughs, the reminders of God's love and care. 
Please remember Laugh Again with your support. Your gifts make this important ministry possible. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.